What's up, everybody, and welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Well, today we've got a really fun episode for you, and really, this is just a total mashup of reviewing the news with Cody meets Gear 30 with Cody. As you will see, I think it was pretty obvious that Cody was sad that he missed last month's Reviewing the News episode, and we replaced him with Jason Blevins and Chris Davenport. And if you all haven't checked out that episode, I highly recommend it. And actually, turns out Cody does too. But as you'll see, while this was supposed to be a conversation about five gear myths, Cody had hit me up a while ago and said that this is something he thought we should do. Well, it just really ended up being a reviewing the news and a Gear 30 episode. And you know what? I think we're all winners. This was a pretty fun episode. It also comes with some bonus material because somehow we went down the rabbit hole of cookware and pots and pans. And um, at the end, we dropped... My thoughts on the Mocha Master versus the Yura coffee maker. So I don't know. This is a pretty freaking consequential episode here. Um, it's really got something for everyone. So anyway, that's our work here today. Talk about, I don't know, pretty much everything. This episode of Gear 30 is presented by our blister recommended shop, Willie's which is the premier ski and board shop in Western Pennsylvania. Willie's features a robust junior buyback program, including a hard-to-believe free gear program for kids five years of age and under. And with two locations in Pittsburgh and another location that's about 50 yards away from the lifts at Seven Springs Mountain Resort, well, whether you are a first-timer or a seasoned veteran, Willie's is going to take great care of you. Willie's offers advanced tuning capabilities using robotic Montana machines. And actually, when we start rolling out our Blister Summit panel sessions, you're going to be able to hear Willie's owners, Greg Klein and his wife, Shearston. Well, they both make appearances on some really fantastic Blister Summit panel sessions, so you're going to get to hear for yourself the kind of expertise and experience and chops that these two bring to the table. But folks, that's not all. Blister members receive 10% off store-wide, 20% off boot fitting, and Blister members are eligible for a $99 season tuning pass that is valid for unlimited waxing and tunes. So if you are a Blister member, contact Willie's for more info about those deals, and you can also go to their website, willieskiandboard.com, and we'll have a link to the Willie's website in the show notes of this episode. Now, folks, uh, just one more thing. I wanted to give you an update on our Blister Crash Course videos. As longtime listeners of Gear 30 know, we have a Snowblade video that we're going to be shooting at the end of this month. And that's a follow-up to our glorious Telemark video. So who knows how the Snowblade video is going to go down. But I want to just give you a reminder. The next video in the lineup, we actually haven't crossed that threshold yet. We need to get to 750 ratings of Gear 30 
And that then puts us on the path to our snowboard video. So if you like the show and are a regular listener, please leave us that rating or review in Apple Podcasts. I'm scared of snowboarding. I'm afraid of the whole, you know, catching the toe edge and slamming or catching the heel edge and slamming, but I think we need to see it. I think I need to get on a board finally. So um, that's really up to you. So I don't know, leave us that rating or review in Apple Podcasts and maybe what you should do is you could just leave a rating like, say I'm the 101st listener since, you know, Cody still likes to slander us and talk about how we only have an audience of 100 people. Completely false. Um, So, I don't know. Let's see if we get a couple uh, I'm the 101st listener comments in our rating and review section. Anyway, that's all I've got for you. And so now let's go ahead and get to my wide-ranging conversation with Cody Townsend. Here we go. All right. Happy to be joined by my former reviewing the news partner. You know, I don't know if you got the message, Cody, but I think maybe Blevins and Davenport kind of replaced you or they were kind of jockeying for a position there. I don't I don't totally know what the what the deal was, but um I know we turned a whole podcast into Blevins Corner. <laughs> and then I do think Dav, Dav was the one that was really trying to snipe in there all of a sudden, you know, knocking on the door. Oh, I was waiting outside doing work. You're like, yeah, Dav, what were you doing outside? I've I've been in that lobby waiting room. Like you want to just go hang out there. So yeah, I was trying to get replaced. Didn't hell that you guys talked about what I wanted to talk about too. <laughs> I know. I felt a little unfaithful, but um yeah. You know, just it's how the world works, Cody. But I don't know. I I don't think they knocked you out just yet. So I think we'll let you come back. Anyway, um, hey, man, you're up in Canada. Why don't you give us a little bit of an update of uh, what life is like at the moment? Yeah, uh, Canada for the rest of the winter. Move the family up here, being Elise, our dog, Theo, and our kid in Indy. And uh, for the listeners out there, you might be hearing some squelching in the background and some little bit of high-pitched screaming. That's because I'm on dad duty while recording a podcast. And we have a very small studio apartment in Pemberton, so couldn't get away from it anyway. So pre-apologize for that, but just rest assured, he's having a good time back there. Um, but yeah, it's been kind of a crazy last month, just like moving a family up here, uh, driving, uh, what's normally a two day drive in five days. Cause it's a lot harder to travel with a four month old. Um, and then just starting to switch my brain into like 50 mode because, um, you got 14 lines left and I think nine of them are up in Canada. Um, and I'm probably going for about seven of them this year. And, um, it's weird. Like I realized like you're in such a weird different mode and then you go into 50 mode and it's like it took me like three days to like switch my brain because you have to be checking the weather twice a day multiple models every day uh checking the avi report every day calling like five or six people getting you know conditions reports from there scouring social media of all the people you know in that area to like figure out um everything and and yeah just keep your tabs on the lines um you know it's like yeah, it's kind of, it starts to get a little overwhelming. Um, the main thing I'm going to be overwhelmed with is this spring because it's March. I haven't got a single line done. There's a little bit of weather coming in. Probably going to try and fit seven to eight lines in eight weeks, being April and March. And one of them's a 10 day traverse in those eight weeks. So yeah, it's going to get, it's going to be a little heavy. I might not be seeing my family very much and also might be very tired. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think that seems about right. So, okay, so you're kind of hoping to maybe tick off seven or eight of these with a total of 14 to go? Yeah, that's a that's it. Um, it looks just like there's two in Canada that I'm not going to be going for, um, which would be uh, Baffin Island because that just kind of takes a uh, full multi-week expedition. Um, something I can do kind of later, like I'm trying to tick off a majority of the roadside attractions, um, uh, if you want to frame it that way, around here. And then Mount Robson, I mean, by miracle, it could come into condition and be in the right place in the right time and go for it. But I'm not putting that like focus and energy that I think is necessary for it. So yeah, so it'd be like seven up in uh, Western Canada. Um, and then two in Alaska that I'll be trying to go, go for, um, keeping tabs on Alaska right now for the Sphinx, a rebate of that, while then also keeping tabs on every other line out, out in Western Canada. So, so yeah, just, um, trying to do, get into 50 mode. Well, Uh, man, I, I don't know. Should I, should I just pencil Blevins and Davenport in for reviewing the news? (laughs) he didn't like that he didn't like that okay we'll we'll still try to find a window we'll still try it's gonna be tough i'm probably not gonna be reading much i'm probably gonna just be like walking up mountains and trying to catch up on sleep and drive to the next zone also get home and say hi to my son for a second and then drive away be like sorry honey (laughs) i'm gonna be gone another week okay well we'll 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 figure this out whether we should you know, find substitutes or we'll just catch you on another, you know, daddy daycare with, with you and Indy. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. We'll see. I mean, if actually it would be a good thing if we have to find replacements, because mm-hmm. that means I'm being successful. That's right. So, so yeah, if Dav and Blevins have to step in, I'm not, I'm, I'm okay with that, but <laughs> as long as they relinquish their seats at the end, <laughs> okay. I don't want to give up this seat. Okay. Well, Tell you what, um, again, since maybe just to assuage a little bit of my guilt for having kind of reviewed the news without you, I thought we would just talk and touch on maybe two things that I didn't talk about with with Jason and Chris. And then we're going to move into kind of our five gear myths conversation here. You know, there was this interesting phenomenon, I guess we could say, at this past Winter Olympics where there were some questions raised about around topics of diversity at the Winter Games and then corresponding questions about fairness. You know, some time ago, we had uh, Benjamin Alexander on, right, who is now the first Jamaican to have appeared in alpine skiing at the Winter Olympics. And so... You got. We'll put a link to that episode in the show notes to this one. But we had uh, Benji talking about the kind of run up to his participation in these games. But in the aftermath of this, there were these questions raised about was this a fair process of qualifying? Do you want to take it from there? Or yeah, I'm yeah like. I I saw some of those things got brought up and one of the people that brought it up was someone that didn't qualify for the Olympics and who has actually been a longtime close friend of mine. So they're potentially, you know, I, I'm not going to like lambast him or anything like that um, because what he said, I think, had some truth to it. But I also think he has some, I don't know, blind spots as well. Um, So like the factor is that uh, Steve Nyman, who I grew up ski racing with, who we were like roommates 
teammates for a long time, really competitive with each other. And then all of a sudden he got really, really good. <laughs> left me in the dust. Um, he, uh, he didn't qualify for the Olympics and he brought up this kind of like, Hey, it's not fair that other people are being let in that aren't metal contenders or, you know, po- are just being in the top 10 or something like that. Because his livelihood depends on it. You know, that's what his, how he's supported financially is being a professional ski racer. So, and he kind of, what I've heard from it, there is some truth to it in the way that there's these, there's these kind of effed up ways you can kind of get into the Olympics. And generally you have to be wealthy in order to do it. Um, There's these point chases races where um, you can like pay your way to go to these races where very few people are at, except for a very top couple top name pros that have very low points. So low points is good in FIS. Um, so they'll lower their points. Uh, if you end up getting sixth place and their top five are above you, you end up getting really low points, even though if you were to go to a normal race, you would be never get those points. So it's hard system to kind of describe quickly in a podcast, but ultimately like it's a way for people to chase qualification if they have the financial means. And there are some examples of that. Um, I don't know exactly specifically. I haven't talked to Steve about that, but I know it happened. And we saw it, I think it was in the, it was in the, um, the Pyeongchang Olympics, where there was that half pipe skier who skied yep. for Hungary, yep. um, was from LA and like literally couldn't even get out of the half pipe. Yep. And she went through this thing of going to China, going to like these qualification events and getting top 10 because there was literally n- nine people competing and not qualified for the Olympics. So yeah, like that's kind of effed up. But personally, like in the spirit of the Olympics, I think it's far, far cooler to have someone from Jamaica like Benji and all of Jamaica cheering one guy on in his first Olympics and alpine skiing. To me, that's way cooler. That's the spirit of the Olympics. I mean, hell, Cool Runnings is one of the greater sports movies of all time. It's based entirely around that. And I, I like that should be the spirit of the Olympics because to me, what we've seen with like almost a lot of the politicization of it, which we talked about with these country versus country dynamics to diplomats pulling out countries being banned, all these kind of things. It's like, look, like the spirit is like a bunch of sports people from around the world come together and have an incredible international competition. So in order to really do that, like we gotta like let this system kind of persist because they should. Like, I would rather see Benji in the Olympics. I would rather see there's a Chilean skier, Henrik von Appen, mm-hmm. who's actually a really good skier in the Olympics than, than you know, sorry, Steve, than you. <laughs> he won World Cups. You've been in the Olympics plenty of times. And, you know, I feel for him. But at the same time, you're like, spirit of the Olympics, like, to me, it's uh, it should be a diverse group of people. Uh, representing their countries in this great grand international spirit competition. Yeah, I agree. And I guess the thing that I would want to see, because I very much agree with you, I think diversity in the games is a really good thing. And I'm going to have Benji back on to talk to him about some of this and just hear his experience of being at the games and, and how it has been sort of the different responses in the aftermath um, of the games. But I think a really important part of this and where I would kind of double down on my position on this is if what's happening currently 
is in fact reducing friction or creating new inroads for more people from these countries to get into these different sports. So that's going to take some programming, some infrastructure, and the rest. This is a lot less interesting as a kind of one-off. But if this is sort of creating new inroads and opportunities for other you know, athletes and future generations, then that's, I think, the right move. Yeah. And like, I mean, they already did. I remember when I was younger, they kind of would let almost anyone else in. Um, you know, you could be from a random different countries and racing the Olympic downhill. And there was all of a sudden a safety issue when you're putting someone with a beginner to intermediate level um skier in an olympic downhill course um that seemed like it needed pushback and they did they made the qualification tougher for for the world cup and for the olympics so you do have to have like a certain low enough points to make it it actually i think uh, off the top of my head i think you still have to be within the like top 300 in the world in order to go and that makes that's a heavy limit for someone like benji who you know didn't grow up skiing um so but i think they did it out of safety concerns and that kind of makes sense to be continued and i i am looking forward to the conversation with benji to just get his perspective on it and that was one of the things i was looking forward to talking about with you the other thing yeah. uh I don't know that this one requires a whole long conversation. Maybe just in my view, it's worth celebrating. There was an announcement that for the in USA soccer, that women soccer players were now going to be paid the same as men. And I just was like, well, that's about time. <laughs> um, you know, considering but, they're way better than the men. <laughs> that's right. Maybe they should be, yeah, making more. But um, at least to see that kind of the proverbial leveling of the playing field, um, it feels like that's a long time in coming. Congratulations to the many women that have been pushing for this. And this does, I guess, on the one hand, it very much feels like it is worth celebrating while also acknowledging, like, well, I wish it had happened sooner but um here we are and at least going forward hopefully this continues to establish a precedence yeah you know like i try and, and analogize this to something i witness in the ski industry um and why it's important that the women's soccer team is being paid fairly um and that's if I've seen this in skiing where people will want to support new people, support new women. And they're like, okay, and we're going to put you in this movie and we're going to put you in this. And we want you to go on this shoot and whatnot while also not paying that person a single dime. So what, I mean, you, if you're not getting paid, then you have to have a job, like a, a real job. And then at that point, like you have to take time off work to go to do your other work, um, which can be very hard. You also will miss opportunities because quite often early in my career, opportunities would come at the last second because uh, someone got hurt. Oh, they've got an open space. You're last on the list. And they're like, oh, okay, we can work it in. And then they give you a call like, hey, do you want to be here in Pemberton, BC tomorrow? And you'll jump in your car and drive 14 hours. If you have another job, that's impossible to do. 
and I see this pressure on these young people and, and young women to try and like, hey, you got you to make it. We're giving you opportunities. They're like, well, you're not paying me anything. Like, you're not giving me the financial support to actually do this. And you're like, what's the, it's just like this facade of support. And you're, I, I kind of see the same thing for with women's soccer. It's like, cool, like, you want to make it all the way to the Women's World Cup team, but you're not. You're going to make pennies, and you might have to have another job unless you're a heavily marketable person. Um, or and if you don't make it, like let's say you're right on the cusp, but you're like, well, then you're dead broke, and you're will go back to work in your job. Like if you really want these sports and these people within these sports to succeed, you have to pay them. Like it's just a fact. You can't survive in our world without it. So, um, so to me, it's kind of a yeah, it's awesome. It's cool to see. Yeah. All right, we're going to leave off from the news for now. I'll get into a bit of myth busting, I guess. Um, it's going to be interesting to see if we actually are in agreement on all of these myths that we are allegedly busting. I might be trying to, I don't know, uh, preserve the myth. You might be trying to, you know, dismantle the myth. We'll, we'll see where this ends up. Where did you want to start? Yeah, I mean, I think we had this idea or I had popped this idea, I texted you. I was like, we got to get some like myth buster and kind of yeah. like stuff because I think there are a lot of gear myths that can persist for a long time. And a few of them you know, I'm pretty passionate about, but I've almost kind of forgot about. So um, the first topic that I wanted to kind of do a myth buster style debate on is that it's about stiff boots. That essentially if you, the better you skier you are, the stiffer your boots need to be. Um, you know, the if you're a ripping skier, you need a 150 flex World Cup boot. And I think that's utter BS because flex in boot to me is it's about the right flex, not the most flex. Yeah. Um, I have this story when I was actually ski racing. Um, I think it was about 18, 19 years old and our boots back in the day, you could really, you could easily swap the lower cuff and the upper cuff. And we do it all the time. And you'd have soft, medium, hard flex, uh, lowers and uppers. And you'd kind of, you'd, you know, talk with your friends. Oh, I'm using soft lowers and hard uppers or soft uppers and hard lowers. And I was testing boots once. And I all of a sudden was like, kind of trying to break out of the, like the machismo feeling of like, you need to be on hard boots and hard boots. And it was just like, yeah, 150, 150, 160 plug boots. That's all you need. And I ended up working my way down and in timing and in training, I was way faster in soft softs. And I started using and ski racing strictly in soft boots or, you know, they were still probably 140 flex and stiffer than most people than any commercial boot. But I realized that at one point we are like, you have three hinge points in your body or in your lower body. You have your hips, your knees, and your ankles. And if you completely remove your ankles, you completely remove essentially a flex point, a power point, a feel point uh, out of your ski anatomy. And to me, like I had so much more control and so much more feel with soft boots that it was like, why are we all going to stiff boots? This started to persist even when I started like free ride skiing. I actually thought it was more like when I was competing, I would see people being in 150 flex boots. I'm like, dude, if you're stomping a 50 foot cliff into hard pack, like you need your ankles to flex to absorb that. So it's a thing where like I, there's this like very, I think ego driven feeling to stiffer boots, the better the boots. And that to me is completely backwards. Okay. Now let's see if we agree on this here in Crested Butte. 
I don't know a lot of people using, say, a 150 to try to ski all mountain. And especially for some of our folks who were just out here during the Blister Summit, like Crested Butte is a bunch of steep, techy, and pretty moguled up terrain. Like it, I mean, to me, it just feels at least like, sure, if we're just skiing groomers and skiing them fast, I still don't need a 150 boot and wouldn't be interested in it, but I definitely don't want a boot that stiff if I got to start reacting to really wild terrain, you know? And so I guess when we're talking, for the sake of context, are you willing to assign some numbers here? Like I'd say a lot of good skiers in, say, we'll just talk about CB, are in 130s and maybe 140 flex boots. Are you trying to make the case that maybe some of those folks ought to step down to a 120 or 110? Yeah, I would say there is probably a a decent percentage of them that should step it down. Um, One, I think the new 150 is 130. Like every company out there is labeling things as 130, regardless of whether it being a 130 or not. Um, You know, I've heard these conversations on the deep dives with Matt Manzer that you do, and I know it. Like, a 130 is not equal to a 130. And I have, like, three pairs of boots that are pretty much considered 130, and they flex entirely differently. Um, You know, you're... you're, uh, width of your boots, your last of your boot has more kind of importance when it comes to your flex. Um, to me, like what I, I guess you guys talk about this a lot too, is the progressive flex versus hitting that wall and whatnot. To me, like I am big proponent of that progressive flex. And to me, like there's plenty of people that can't flex their boots in a proper way, the way they drive their ski. So going to a softer boot will help them drive their ski better by getting forward into their boots, getting to ski the front of their ski. Um, The fact is when we ski hard pack, we ski the front of our ski. When we ski powder, we ski the back of our ski, even with rocker, even with everything. You can see it in people's stances. Even if their ankles are forward, their butt's going to be back in powder. And then when you're skiing hard pack, you're in the front of your ski. So a soft boot will help you get into the front of your ski. So like, I just think they're like, people need to take a little bit more look at their own ability and not have that ego-driven need to get a 130. Um, I think you were telling me about seeing Wendy Fisher skiing like 105. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. With, so my wife skis a 105 flex boot huh. and she's one of the strongest skiers I know. Yes. And so like, and even I see an obsession of going like, oh, you know, women need a 130 flex and you're like, not necessarily. Yes. They need to have a boot like that available for certain women because of the way they ski. But at the same time, like a softer flex boot is a can, can be a really good boot for an ex world cup ski racer like Wendy Fisher and my wife, who is uh, one of the most accomplished free riders in history. So it's kind of like, I just don't want that obsession with flex numbers to always be your driving factor. Like think about getting into your boot, getting to the front of your boot being more important. Yep. So maybe the thing that we just want to, if we are busting this particular myth and this is going to come up again in some other things we're going to talk about, but Don't fall into the move of like, oh, I want to think of myself as a good skier or I want other people to think of myself as a good skier 
ergo, I need to get into a 130 or a 140 or a 150 flex boot. Like, don't worry about that. Stop it. And just think about, are you able to ski the way you want to ski? Yeah. I mean, if anything, I would go for a performance upgrade and anyone is get a narrower last boot. That's if you right. you can fit in a narrower last boot without with a little bit of boot work, if you not just have a super wide foot, go from a 100 last boot to a 98 last boot. Yep. And that will be a big, big change in your in your ski style. Um, to me, like it's been interesting. I've been testing this boot. Well, it's actually out now, but I realized um, when I was answering questions about it, the uh, MTN Summit, they're like, how someone was asking me, how is it so stiff? One of the things is because it fits really well, because it fits to your foot, because you can make like I always use the analogy of taping your foot in football using athletic tape, yep. like a few millimeters of athletic tape can pretty much lock your ankle out. So a good fit can do the same thing, can make the whole boot stiffer in general. You don't have to just rely on adding extra plastic in order to make it good. So to me, like the the Summit MTN uh, boot is like kind of a stiff boot for what it's made of because it's not that much different in materials than anything out there, but just because it fits really, really well. Hmm. Interesting. And I, I do want to second that thought about don't worry so much about the flex number if you're trying to like progress your skiing but worry a hell of a lot about being in a boot that is simply too big for you because i think that a lot of people new to skiing or people who are going and still renting ski boots two things are happening and the combination of those two things are pretty bad one they are getting in like a 90 or a 100 flex boot but the bigger problem is they're getting in a boot that's way too big for them. And so that 90 and Matt Manzer and I have talked about this. So maybe the problem isn't so much the 90 flex or 100 rating, but the problem is when you combine that softer boot with a boot that's simply too big for you, you're going to make that boot even softer and pretty much maybe unskiable. I've, I've talked to some friends in my life recently who are newer to the sport I have tried to convince them to get into a smaller boot. And now on the mountain, they're like, I'm so happy in this thing. Whereas when they went and put it on in the shop, they're like, screw you, dude. I'm like, this is crazy painful. And I'm like, dude, bend your knees. Like, you know, yeah, totally. and, and Don't so stand straight up. It makes it hurt way worse. <laughs> so maybe that's our, that's what, that's our takeaway here. Don't worry so much about the number on your boot or trying to get that number as high as possible to impress your friends or your own ego, but do try to get in the lowest volume boot you can. Perfect. Okay. Where are we going next? I don't know. You should start this one off because <laughs> I, I generally make fun of you for this one, but I want to hear your argument well, truly because I, I tend to typecast you. You do. Well, all, all we have written down in our notes is lightweight versus heavyweight. So I don't quite know how we are framing this particular part of the conversation. I mean, if you're leaving it up to me, then I guess I'll say, you know, one way to put this is um, as listeners of Gear 30 and readers of Blister have heard me saying for quite a while, I absolutely do not think that lightweight is always better than heavier boots or heavier skis. But there's a couple different ways we could frame this debate. And I don't know if that's the way you wanted this to go. I guess it would be, you know, like 
there is a notion, it's a general notion that the more metal you have in your ski, the beefier it is, the better the ski is going to be in general. There is a little bit of truth to that for a certain thing. Um, for me, at the same time, like light is kind of typecast as something that's not damp. It's like very unforgiving in a certain way that it's chattery and whatnot. But like, to me, there's stuff that I think is beneficial for it. I've just heard you talk a lot about <laughs> kind of like heavier boots, heavier skis, yep. and just kind of like, you know, is going lighter a better thing and seeing this trend of going lighter and lighter on skis and you kind of coming back saying like, no, like it's not necessarily better. So I wanted you to defend your position of yep. being like, why, why you think the ski industry needs to kind of come back to heavier roots as opposed to some of the stuff where we've gotten more light. Yeah. Well, I mean, a couple of things. One, in terms of sales across the industry, the reason I started getting really loud about this was because there's no question that in terms of sales of ski boots and in terms of sales of skis, the lighter stuff is outselling what five or 10 years ago were kind of the standard, like standard weights for these things. And I also talk with a lot of shop owners um, and I talk with a lot of manufacturers and they have said over the past decade, like people walk up to a wall in a ski shop, they pick up a boot or they pick a ski up off the wall and they're like, oh my God, wow, that's so light. That's amazing. I want that. And literally some of the conversations I've had with ski manufacturers are like, we just have to make a lightweight product because people are walking up to the wall and they're just picking the thing up and being like, that feels light. I want it with no thought going to like, well, where are you going to use that boot or ski? Right. Are we just using it for inbounds? Are you doing very short little day tours or are you doing big extended, you know, like light and fast kinds of ski touring? And so to me, yeah, personally for inbounds gear, I have been a big fan and big advocate of like, give me some weight in my ski boot or give me some weight in my ski because I feel like the damping properties and the suspension that results is really beneficial when trying to ski mixed condition, well, mixed conditions and messed up terrain and conditions, a lot of steep, weird moguls and that kind of thing. Um, so again, Ultimately, I don't care what you ski. I want there to be more clarity around the question of like, this is why I actually might prefer a heavier boot or a heavier ski. And this is when it might be particularly advantageous for you personally to get into something lighter. Gotcha. No, and, and I see the, the the validity to that argument. And like, yes, I mean, I think what you're pushing back on is this like, I don't know, simplistic buying habit more than anything yep. and just picking it up and like that feels good because i will say having tested variety of skis of watching uh uh the qst 106 over time yep. go from a light pretty light ski i think in the 1800 gram to now it's like 2100 grams for the i think it's the 181 or something uh, i can't quote that exactly i forget all the numbers and over that time it's won more awards it's gotten more popular personally i liked the lighter ones better huh. when it came to certain properties i think the new shape is a little bit better but yeah. now we're starting to go i'm starting to go too deep but ultimately what i've seen between the differences in those skis was that 
this lightweight 106 from five years ago had so much power to it. Like I was really impressed with mm. it, like how much power it had. And the versatility it had was incredible. Like I would go to a, the ski area and like rip groomers and rip off piste. And then it was the same ski that I ski toured and summited Denali on and skied the Mesner Kular. And I'm like, that kind of versatility is what I'm chasing. And so to me, that ski alone fought back against the mentality that I even saw present within our own team that like, no, you got to go a little heavier to make it more damp and more powerful in certain situations. So I was like, no, that that 106 originally was really powerful. Like I'm a powerful skier and a big guy and it was plenty powerful for me. So equating lightweight to a lack of power, I don't think necessarily flies. And like my goal when it comes to ski design is to make lightweight skis that perform like heavier skis. Mm -hmm. I think we can do things with materials. I think we can do things with shape and rocker profiles to make a lightweight ski ski like a heavier ski. There's going to be some loss, I think, in dampening. But ultimately, like I want a lightweight ski because it increases my versatility. Also, I've been testing a, a new lightweight ski right now, the ski that I'm kind of developing. And man, is it fun to like pop off stuff and mm -hmm. feel that thing just can flick around wherever you want. And I actually do think there's a like a market for people that aren't maybe necessarily the best skiers more in the intermediate level just the ability to kind of whip them around yeah. like i see people on the resort same mentality we we're talking about stiff boots skiing on double metaled super heavy burly flat tailed skis i'm like you're like an intermediate skier at best man like you are not you should go on a lighter easier ski you'll be able to whip that around way more be far more nimble um so it's just one of these things where it's like in general, I don't think lightweight equates to a lack of power, a lack of dampening. And in general, heavy doesn't necessarily increase your like performance on piste or on the hill because I skied plenty of heavy skis that I don't like. It's just like weight to me is more of a thing where like you should factor it, but it should be more again a factor of your own personal desires your own personal skills and what you want to do with it mm -hmm. yeah and i mean to me it always comes back to actually three things right like so it's the combination of what is your weight whether it's a lightweight thing pick a number in your head right now whatever lightweight means to you so what is your weight in you know think of your lightweight and then your heavy weight what is the shape and what is the flex pattern? Those three things completely work in concert. And this is the argument I've been trying to make. And so I continue to bang the drum that if we're going really lightweight, I personally don't think it makes sense to also then give that really lightweight ski a very stiff flex pattern. To me, that just starts to create a really jarring feel, especially in mixed conditions and kind of variable terrain. If we're just skiing corn, like perfect corn or slush, well, then the suspension's coming from the snow. But the yeah. kind of firmer things get, the suspension or your damping is coming from your boots, bindings, and ski. That's kind of where I'm at with this topic. And, and again, the trend in terms of sales is toward the lighter stuff. So... I have been just trying to rein in like I still, especially if we're riding chairlifts and that's all I'm going to be doing with a ski, that's where I'm trying to like, you know, make the case for, you know, some weight in the ski can really help with the feel, especially if you're 
trying to get out. You're not just some pow chaser, but you're actually like skiing when conditions maybe are pretty crap. And like, I want people to still have fun in those days. Yeah, no, makes sense. Um, nah, I think it, it just goes to there. There isn't any universality when it comes yeah. to light versus heavy yeah. is really like, that's where I kind of push. Like, that's why I joke around and push it back on you quite often yeah. because I've had lightweight skis and I'm like, these things rip in mixed conditions. Um, what I've been pushing for in ski design for the last number of years is thinking of ski design like surfboards in surfboard shaping. If you change the tail a tiny bit, you got to change the nose rocker. There's all this kind of a balance of a board and water. And I'm seeing more design starting to happen like that in skiing where it's like, if you, you don't just put like X, tip rocker on and then X tail rocker on. If you change the the flex pattern of that tail rocker, you got to change the flex pattern of that tip rocker. You got to like think of everything working within each other and like how the back five centimeters are going to affect the front five centimeters. Like um, I feel like we're starting to see that, but it's actually been really hard to kind of shift mentalities in that sort of way. So, so yeah. And one thing I'll say, and by the way, you'll see this when we release our we did a blister summit panel, another one on ski design. We do address sort of the, the lightweight question. And I say, I say, uh, I said during that panel, I was like, well, this really pains me to say, but it seems to be a fact that in general, lightweight skis are getting better and performing better. And I was like, my God, I'm undermining like all the, all the hard work I've done over the last decade, but I just wanted to hear some different designers talk about why they thought that was so, but I would accept that as a generalization that lighter skis today are performing better, have better ride qualities than they did certainly 10 years ago. Uh, so next thing, um, waterproof membranes. So, this may even sound a little counter to something like I put out there when I do put a gear video out there, but that the fact is 90% of the time you don't need Gore-Tex. You don't need waterproof membranes in ski clothes. Um, and especially if you live in a place like Colorado, it's pretty dry there. I see an obsession with waterproof membranes. Uh, people are looking at the like 10x waterproof breathable 20,000, 30,000, and then buying accordingly, you know, the breathability and then the, the um, waterproofness of it and the ratings and all that stuff. And the, the fact is like, it's actually pretty rare that you need waterproof membranes in skiing. What it does for you is it increases the versatility of your equipment and in, uh, and your outerwear. Like you can go to the Pacific Northwest and use your same kit and be like, oh, I'll be fine. Um, but often I just, I, I think like you don't have to spend as much money on a Gore-Tex kit as everyone is maybe potentially leading you to believe, um, including myself, um, because that's what I wear because I have one suit and I wear it for, everything that I do. But like, if you live in Colorado and you're trying to get into skiing or you just want a new kit for the year, like don't necessarily look at the $600 three layer, 30,000 water rated waterproof jacket as the end all be all jacket. Be like, yeah, I can easily buy the $300 jacket and that'll be good for 99% of my days in Colorado. Yep. Yeah. And, and, you know, credit to them. 
our managing editor, Luke Kappa, and our reviewer, Sam Shaheen, they have been banging this drum for quite a while, um, specifically on the notion that in in a place where, like Colorado, where it snows and then it tends to go bluebird and dry, especially in environments like this, whether you're riding chairlifts or ski touring, they both place a lot more emphasis on breathability and letting letting your sweat escape and evaporate and get out of the shell um, more so than like coming with this full waterproof membrane. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, if I don't know how much we should assume like people are like how many people tend to go ski in the same jacket, like all the time, like do people have multiple kits? I mean, you're doing it. You're, you're kind of skiing in one kit, but it might make some sense. Actually. It's like, if you actually are skiing in the rain, then maybe buy a less expensive hundred percent waterproof garment, find it used or whatever. But that for men, like, how many of us are really out there skiing in a sustained downpour all the time? So I, I don't know. Do you, that, that maybe didn't sound like the smartest thing out there. What I, I guess what I mean is thinking about the fact that if the average skier is doing something like six or seven ski days a year, I don't know that there's many people that are say of the six or seven days, five of those days are in a sustained downpour. Yeah, there's probably zero of the days, most likely, unless, I don't know, you hit the wrong cycle and you're in Whistler or something. Yeah. But yeah, to me, like, you know, it's really factors into ski touring, and especially because at the ski resort, I think like, I, it's funny, I feel how different I have to dress for the ski area for than ski touring. Um, you have to be far more conscious about your layering when you're ski touring. Um, and to me, that's when a really breathability factors yep. in. That's when, like, the only times I get wet when I'm ski touring is when I'm, like, in a super deep dumping storm day and not many people ski tour during that time yeah we're usually doing it for filming reasons and in that place yeah you need a hard shell three-layer Gore-Tex style jacket but for the most part like ski touring like i would rather have the thinnest lightest fabric that is the most breathable because 95 percent of the time i'm getting wet from the inside i'm yep. getting wet from my sweat um i do think like it is potentially you know, your Gore-Tex liner is your first line of defense from the weather. And there is a safety parameter there. Like if you're going deep, um, if you're going for big missions, if there's a chance that you're going to be potentially stuck out there for the night, then it probably it behooves you to worry more about having very like thick, hard shell lake Gore-Tex layers. I think about that sometimes if I'm going like on a multi-night or if I'm, you know, it's an 18 hour mission for something like if you're getting stuck out there, I want to be increasing my ability to sit down in the snow and not soak my ass and get really cold through it. But if I'm going for normal ski tours, like thin, like nylon kind of outer shells that almost feel like spring skiing shells are by far the best thing in my opinion. And I know I've gotten pushback, like soft shell is pretty, you know, it's kind of coming back in vogue in, uh, in little niche circles. And I've seen it in alpinism, shop, soft shells making a comeback, but I'm still not fully sold on soft shell. I have a soft shell top that I kind of like, and I can ski tour in on a light day, but I don't know. It's still, still, if you get snow kind of like 
from skiing pow and you get it all over your pants. It feels like it still kind of absorbs into the soft shell. It doesn't totally shed. So I'm not fully sold on soft shell yet. For pants or yeah, for pants. Yeah. So you're kind of but, as, as just to try to make sure we're giving like some helpful or actionable steps from this. So you might be on the team of maybe you're with a, soft shell jacket or even a nylon jacket, but then hard shell pants. Yeah. If I had to do anything, it would do that just because you're, I don't know, often your legs are in the snow, you're sitting down in the snow. So I would err on the side of hard shell below and like, you know, you tend to not, you don't sweat from your quads, you right. sweat in your back and your yeah. armpits and that's where your heat is being dispersed from. Yeah. So upper body breathability to me is more important than lower body breathability. Agreed. And even if you are riding inbounds and riding chairlifts during a storm, like just by virtue of sitting on a chairlift, we have found that, you know, going with soft shell pants, those can wet out, you know, because you're sitting. And as a, as a generalization, I, I agree with that. If you are just kind of buying one pair of pants and one jacket, I'd probably skew toward that as well go hard shell on the pants, but you can probably get away with not the crinkliest hard shell jacket that's on the market. Totally. So yeah, again, just, uh, I think all these myths are just like, Hey, like think a little bit, what are you doing? Where do you live? What are you mainly skiing? And, you know, I, I see it. People buy for ultimate versatility, which is a good reason to buy. I'm a big proponent of buy it, buy it nice or buy it twice. Like buy something nice and make it last for a long time. I don't want to buy cheap stuff that you're recycling every year. You know, I remember when I started doing that, when I was young for the first time, you're buying a pair of Vans shoes and you buy every six months to a year because they wear out so quickly. And you're like, well, they're only 40 bucks, but then yeah. you're just creating more environmental waste and it kind of sucks. And I remember buying my first pair of like leather boots and they were like $200. And I was like, the hell I'm spending $200 on shoes. Guess what? I still have them. I still wear yep. them. And like, they're 10 years old. I have a tangent that I would love to ask you about. This is really weird. excited over there. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I have gone down a gear rabbit hole in the last like seven days on pots and pans. Ooh. And I... I have kind of frankly, and people who know me um, are probably already laughing, over the last 11 years of Blister, I just like don't cook. I have been running on the like, we need to save time everywhere possible. I've found, I've kind of found myself thinking, and I've said this a lot, like once things, if they ever slow down, that's when I'll like maybe start getting into cooking a bit and trying that. And I was like using this skillet the other day and i was like this thing is beat and like scratched all apart and then i was like well i've heard stuff about teflon and you know how bad or whatever so i started on this deep dive and i'm kind of obsessed right now with like skillets and cookware and i can't believe i just said this but are have you gone down this rabbit hole like do you so, have strong opinions like we've talked about coffee makers i have strong opinions on cookware okay very strong. let me hear so them. here's Here's something I've like never talked to publicly about, but <laughs> if you were to know in my friends group about it, um, so I love cooking. And when I was a kid, I used to watch cooking shows and not cartoons. Um, wow. The only book I've ever gone to a book signing for <laughs> was a cookbook. When I was 17, I drove two hours 
to go to a book signing for Alton Brown, who was my favorite TV chef at that time. He's a good, does a lot of the like science of cooking. I worked as a cook for a while. I worked even as a chef when I was 18 for a restaurant. I've been cooking my whole life. I'm the cook at home. And so I'm, I'm <laughs> definitely love cooking. Um, and then my friends, whatever, there's a kind of joke around Tahoe is if, uh, if Elise and Cody invite you over for dinner, you go. Okay. Cody's cooking. Oh, so. Wow. So yes, uh, um, when it comes to Teflon, yeah, stay the hell away from Teflon. If there's only the, the kind of saying with Teflon is that nothing sticks to it except for it sticks to your body for the rest of your life. There's like saying there's data that shows that if you can burn it off, which is over, I believe, temperatures of 550 degrees, which is actually pretty hot and hard to do. Um, but if you do burn it and you can ingest Teflon and it will never leave your body for the rest of your life. Um, okay, but wait here. Now, the other thing I've heard, though, because, again, I've been going down my deep dive on this, is that there is PFOA-free Teflon, and those folks are like, yeah, there's still Teflon, but as long as it doesn't have PFOA, though I do not know what that actually stands for, you're fine. It is non-toxic. And I'm like, okay, I don't know, but are you, do you have you heard that? Yeah, I've definitely heard that. So the pans that I buy, okay. um, that I started buying about 10 years ago. So Scandinavia, Denmark in particular, was the first country to ban Teflon in cookware. Huh. So they were the ones that were like, all right, like we have to innovate. So there's this company called ScanPan out of Denmark, and they have nonstick cookware that is non-toxic, and it's not based on any Teflon. Um, I found them to be really good. The thing about them is they lose their stick probably after about five years of cooking. And you also have to use non-citrus-based soaps on them. Um, There's the first year, I remember we had one wear out and then we realized we were using a citrus-based soap on it and it kind of ruins it. So you do have to replace it a little bit more, but they're non-toxic. So I've been using scan pans for the most part for the non-stick. And then I've actually kind of gotten into um, the, so there's this company called Maiden. Yeah. It makes a carbon steel. Dude, I, I swear mm-hmm. to God, I have just spent like five or six hours over the last seven days on the Maiden website. I'm like, what is happening to me? But but yeah. so, okay. And to be clear, you and I had not talked about this, but that's the company that I'm getting really intrigued by. Yeah. And I've really, really liked the performance of the of carbon steel. Um, a lot of high end kitchens use it. When I was a cook and a chef, we used like pretty cheap steel stuff, but it would you cook in it so often and it gets so impregnated with oils, they end up becoming kind of Teflon like they almost come nonstick um, carbon steel, like same sort of deal. It's kind of like cast iron, but uh, um, it's better and easier to maintain than than cast iron so i've been i've been really starting to enjoy cook with it i actually have them in my van i have a kind of a saute two two saute pans in my van that i use so you kind of got me in on the mocha master or maca master i still don't know how we're saying that i am lazy and so i'm trying and so like i am a little worried like okay if this cleanup is a lot more of an extensive process I might end up being out, but would you say, because I was looking at the, the maiden has just their stainless steel, straight stainless steel. Then they have their carbon steel. And I was like, dude, I don't know. Would you tell me don't go just straight stainless steel bad for the cleanup? I well, I haven't tried the just stainless steel. The, I will say, yeah, 
stainless steel tends to stain more ironically um you tend to get burn marks more on it whereas like a carbon steel is more you know it's kind of like a, a cast iron where it has more it's a more porous material so it ends up impregnating with oils and whatnot it changes colors over time you don't you know like you, you don't have to worry about it looking kind of funky or whatnot i would honestly the carbon steel i've been kind of liking i'm so, pretty impressed with how non-stick it is right out of the box so okay. if, right. uh, if you were going to go and invest in stuff i would say if you want a real teflon pan style go with a scan pan but i've been starting to like the made in stuff totally random tangent for a senior episode but yep. yeah oh it's gear it's gear yeah and yeah, we are talking gear and it is expensive and i guess like everybody has to eat and I'm I'm yeah. trying to step. I'm like, if I get the right stuff, maybe it will like help me, you know, g- move into the world of like normal human being actual cooking as opposed to like my current habits. So I think that's enough about cookware for now. I don't know if that just gave us an idea for our like our next podcast. Should we do like Cody and Jonathan's? I don't know, cooking with Cody and Jonathan, you can be like the seasoned veteran. I'll be like the total noob. We maybe interview different athletes about some of their favorite recipes and cooking tips and tricks. What do you think? Are we, is this? (laughs) It does seem like a smart media play. I feel like every media company in the world has their own cooking thing Hmm. now. Like it's just a big thing. But um, here's the thing. (laughs) I like to think of myself as an expert in a lot of things not an expert when it comes to being a cook i think i can qualify as an expert in skiing and ski equipment so let's get back to ski equipment (laughs) we'll go to myth number four hide in settings we'll talk about um the myth of i need din 16. Mm -hmm. um that's to me maybe five percent of skiers need din 16. Um, you know, like there was a long period in my career when I was doing like free ride world tour events and you're hucking huge cliffs to hard pack and you're skiing really high speeds, um, skiing in Alaska, that stuff. Yeah. Like I would ski a nine to 16 binding. Um, but like the highest din binding I ski these days is din 13. I'm 200 pounds, six, two, and I still Although I've forgotten how to ski like that maybe 10 years ago, I still feel I'm pretty good skier and ski pretty fast and still can jump cliffs. So like this obsession with DIN 16, especially among young crowd, especially among people that fancy themselves hardcore skiers, it's just like it's not that necessary in certain ways. The trade-off that you get for having that high of a DIN is like, I'd rather have a little more versatility. Um, This isn't just an advertisement for a shift because it's a DIN 13, but it's like there's certain trade-offs you get. Like, for instance, I think the, uh, the cast touring system is a really cool touring system. I think it has a very niche use for people that are like filming or skiing really hard. We've gone into this talking about like Jeremy Heights and Sam Ontomotten, what they're trying to do makes sense. A lot of people, you don't need it. Um, You know, a DIN 13 will be plenty for you. So again, I guess it goes just to that ego, that feeling that you need DIN 16 and then you, I don't know crank them to 12 (laughs) like they're there and there is this like there's this notion and i've heard it before that uh bindings work better in the middle of their spring so you don't max out the spring and 
Uh, that can be said for the very, very ultimate edges from what I've heard. So if your if your spring is completely maxed out, it might not perform quite as perfectly. But all the testing, all they do, like when all the standardized testing doesn't show any difference in performance. If you're in the middle of a nine to sixteen, you're in like you know twelve and a half. That's not going to perform any better if you're at. 10 or you're at 14 or whatever the binding performs the way it's going to perform. So, um, same sort of thing, I guess just the ego, the egos need to have a big number. Yeah. I think might be the egos need to have a big number, but I do think among a certain set of people there has been, I mean, this might actually be sort of the, the biggest myth is that whole thing of like, well, by running an all metal binding, a much heavier binding, or by, you know, skiing a, say, an all metal binding, no plastic, and running a, a binding that goes up to a DIN 18, even if I'm skiing at like a DIN 11 or 12. Well, that case has been made like that that's a smart thing to do. And interestingly, I think you will find this very interesting. We actually covered exactly these questions on our binding panel at the Blister Summit. And Francois Lefebvre, I think I'm saying his name correctly, from, from Ammer, was really, really great on this topic and hitting a number of these different things. I'm looking forward to rolling that, that conversation out. But um, I guess as a bit of a, a spoiler, he really refuted the idea that like, let's say if you are skiing a, a 12 din binding and you tend to set your bindings to eight or nine or 10, that there would be some advantage to still buying, say, a 16 din binding if you are only running at eight or nine or 10 din, something like that. He at least wanted to dispel that. Um, and, you know, not just his opinion, but he's like, listen, we have to test and test and test these things because it is a safety, it is a piece of safety equipment. And um, that's a notion that he was pretty adamant about. And so like, if you're trying to save a few bucks or just trying to save weight, going to that lower DIN binding can actually make good sense. And it isn't in his view, like some big performance difference. So I, and that's, I mean, a lot of the stuff that I've learned from bindings are from talking people like Francois and going uh -huh. through the process of designing people, the bindings and the other engineers in there. And yeah, like the, the tests they have to do. So to get certified by ISO, to get certified by TOOF, you have to go through all of these mechanical robotic style tests. Well, every single binding manufacturer has those exact machines in their factory. And so they go through them thousands and thousands and thousands of times just to make sure that they pass. Um, and yeah, these are same, same sort of myths. My other thing with it too is like DIN is kind of in a certain way created equal, but bindings aren't created equal and the way they use DIN isn't necessarily created equal. So when I was ski racing, I remember we used to make fun of the, the downhill racers that had to ski on markers because uh, the the 
down Solomon downhill binding, which was like the standard back when I was growing up, was a, a nine to twenty binding. Like you go to twenty din, you be skiing like eighteen to nineteen when you're in a downhill. Makes sense. You're going seventy five miles an hour and getting one hundred and forty feet of air. You need a pretty big din. But the marker binding had to go to thirty to get to essentially the same performance levels as the Solomon. And even then, I remember the markers quite quite often. And this is anecdotal, not scientific. Would pop off and pre-release more than the Solomon ones. So it was this kind of thing where it was like this knowledge that, yeah, like the binding itself, even though it's got a DIN number that is said to be like force-based standardized metric, the binding itself still has a lot of factors into it. It's why I went into my bonus video I did for my YouTube of talking about like elasticity to me is more important. I like the way that the way a binding feels, um, it's really hard for people to test bindings, but if you want to look at metrics, like to me, like having a lot of elasticity to me is actually gives the most per best performance feedback. Like I it's suspension, it's dampening. Like when I did that test once of trying to, STH2s, one with no elasticity that we locked out. And then my other foot was one with elasticity and going side and like making turns. And literally I couldn't carve with the one with no elasticity, but the one with elasticity I could carve on. It was like this realization that like, oh, this is suspension. This is essentially micro suspension while I'm in a turn. And to me, like DIN is the obsession when you start looking at some of the other numbers, some of the other things like toe heights, like ramp angles, deltas, and even elasticity, which I think is most important. So if you want different performance features out of your bindings, look at that before you're looking at DIN. And stay tuned for this um, yeah. this bindings panel session. It was a really good one. And um, I'm looking forward to more people seeing that. So myth five. Um less advanced skiers are fine skiing anything essentially like this notion that like ah you can't really feel it so it doesn't matter what you ski um you know kind of in a certain way makes sense you're like well if you if you're not pushing the ski to its limits or to its highest performance capabilities then what's the matter just might as well have two two sticks underneath you um i'm in the exact opposite field i actually think good skiers should worry less about exactly what they're skiing on. Personally, I've said this a lot where I value the performance of boots far more than skis. And I'm like, I can go out on any pair of skis on any given day and have fun. If I go out on a pair of bad boots, I'm going to be miserable and half a run and I'm probably going in, um, whether that's fit or just performance. So to me, like I actually think beginners and intermediates should be the ones more focused on a good ski that fits their skills, what they want to do and help them progress. Um, and I think advanced skiers, like, yeah, we might be able to notice subtleties and like get away with stuff. But like, I know good skiers that are like, they buy five different pairs of skis from wildly different companies that I have like strong opinions on. And they're like, yeah, they're all great. I'm like, really? <laughs> like, well, it's probably because you're a pretty good skier and you can make any one of them work um, for you and you can figure out a way to have fun on them. You might not be able to like charge as hard or, um, you know, have as much playful or nim nimbleness to them. But like, to me, like, I, I think beginners and intermediates should be far more focused on it than than the opposite. Yep. Yeah. And I, I added this one, um, to our 
list of myths. I mean, in part because this is still something that I hear quite often. And I think that we maybe all have this tendency. So like, for example, um, I don't like, I don't play golf at all, right? At all. Like I've hit a golf ball with a club twice in my life or something. And so I think there's something like where it's like, okay, yeah, I don't know anything about this. I have no experience with it. So if, if you were like, let's go golfing, I might be like, oh, okay, um, I should wrangle up some clubs. Probably anything is fine because I don't do this, right? I think we we have the tendency, like when we, do, or a, say, I don't know, maybe a tennis racket. I don't know if that's a good analogy or not. But I think the tendency is when we don't know an area, we assume anything will kind of be fine. And I just think it's the exact opposite of that because a good golfer a good skier is frankly going to be able to adjust to any equipment and we will likely be able to adjust fairly successfully. Whereas again, when I go, if I'm skiing here in CB or at other ski areas, when I see clearly less experienced skiers out on these rental skis that are like 78 millimeters wide with a perfectly flat tail, and it's like an eight inch pow day. I'm like, I guarantee that ski is not helping you enjoy your day or maneuver around the mountain. And if anybody was going to be on a 75 millimeter wide ski with a completely flat tail on an eight inch pow day, the really advanced skiers are going to have the best shot of making those work. Except all the advanced skiers are on wider, completely rockered out skis. So like... Yeah. The advanced skiers are on the easier gear and the inexperienced people are on equipment that is 100% making it harder to maneuver their way around the mountain. 100%. And I even see that in ski design and ski popularity over time. I remember doing this test like 12 years ago and um, we were testing a number of different fat skis as we were developing something. Uh, I think we were developing the Rocker 2108 at that time. And I remember going out and we tested a bunch of skis and I was like, oh, I like these, they're subtleties. And then I got on a pair of the Rossignol S7s. I thought they were one of the most garbage skis I've ever skied on. I really did not like them. They have this huge shovel, huge wide tip. I could not get them to like point down the fall line if my life depended on it. And yet I would see like another guy roll by him, another guy roll by him. And we looked up, I remember at Alto, we looked up the bowl above us and it was a pow day and we saw our tracks coming down as professional skiers. And there were huge tracks and like hit a little air or something like that. And then right next to us are these like tiny little S turns all the way down. And a guy rolls up going the S7s. And I realized I was like, this guy was smiling ear to ear because those skis turned for him. They made it so easy for him to just like bounce down and just have a blast. And to me, it was like, oh, that makes sense. That's why these are popular. They're easy. He's not as skilled of a skier. He's not as strong. He's having a great time. Like we don't need to make skis 100% that are working for my needs all the time. Like we, you know, there's plenty of skiers I see out there that are on ski gear that's way advanced for them. And you're like, no, just go on something more fun, more easy, like something that just makes your day more enjoyable. Like, um, and so when it comes to even beginners, the same sort of thing, just make your day easier by 
skiing a ski with a lot of side cuts, skiing something with a lot of tip, um, you know, big shovel and a big wide radius. It's like that, that's going to make your day a lot more enjoyable. And I guess this message is, you know, your, your audience, all 100 people listening to this podcast <laughs> are probably very, you know, subscribers. They're into the industry, but it's more if they're talking to other people, if they're talking to shop kids, like they're the ones you want to like, try and convince those, those beginners, those intermediates to be like, no, man, you're here for the week. Like demo these skis. You'll have yourself a way more enjoyable time if you're on a higher performance ski and get the person into the sport as opposed to like struggling and fighting against it. I'm so mad at you right now for continuing this slander of our, <laughs> of our audience of a hundred people. Damn it, Cody. This is why. This is why I can only have Blevins and Davon from now on. Yeah, well, they just toot your own horn. <laughs> I fight back. <laughs> oh, That's <man>. why we. <laughs> well, you better now. You have to like you know push out this this episode uh, since apparently you still think we only have a hundred listeners. So, yeah, if you you don't be part of the problem, Cody. Okay, I'll I'll do my best to promote. So, um, speaking of promotions. Uh, what are we celebrating, watching, reading? Because I actually have something to say about almost the, the last podcast I went on, but I want to know, like, what do you, I mean, you've been busy with the, the, the summit, so you're probably not doing anything. You're probably <laughs> celebrating something more than anything. What is that? Well, you know, you know, you, you don't make the regular appearances on Gear 30, but like we always end the week with like this what we're celebrating segment. And mm-hmm. um, later tonight, I will raise a glass of, I'm going to go 15 year whistle pig and honestly the thing i was thinking about today i've actually got some upcoming trips like ski trips most of them are happening once the ski area closes here in crested butte but i was like we had such a good time at the summit and just getting to ski with people that you know had come into town and i'm gonna go make a trip out to the cascades in washington i'm actually gonna get six or seven days of skiing in Utah. I think I might get a little East Coast ski trip in and I'm supposed to be heading back to Iceland. And I'm like, this has all been on pause, you know, for the last couple of years. I'm really looking forward to that and getting to link up with some people I haven't seen in a while. And so that's what I'm celebrating. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat. I'm celebrating being back in Canada, being in Pemberton, a place I spent almost 10 years and have a pretty healthy connection to a lot of people here and just getting back here and seeing friends again and just having the border opened up. And uh, it's it's a cool place to be. Um, just, I don't know, that's why we we were going to go to Revelstoke originally because that's where close to more of the lines I have to ski for the 50 project. But um, uh, we just ended up coming to Pemby just because there was so much more connection with friends and friends with babies, you know, makes babysitting a lot easier, yep. makes hanging out a lot easier. You all of a sudden realize you're like, oh, you start hanging out with other people with kids because they can scream and do their own thing and everyone's used to it. So <laughs> um, that's what I'm celebrating. But when it comes to reading and watching, so I think last month I mentioned Snow Crash. Um, yeah. Reading that, it was pretty inter- interesting. I was like halfway through. I got to downgrade my recommendation Ooh. on that. The second half of that book really turned sour. Um, It just, I don't know, it was weird. It was one of those books where you're kind of like 80% through and you're like, how am I 80% through? Because this is not wrapping up well at all. You know, it just keeps kind of splintering outward and Mm. you're like, what's going on here? It was okay book. I would just say it's a mediocre book. Wouldn't 
necessarily recommend it. It was kind of entertaining. It's also interesting reading a book that was written in 1992. Um, There's some topics in there that you're like, wow, that would not fly those words that you're using in there. Um, When it comes to gender, when it comes to race and certain things like that, you're like a little, you know, I'm, you know, I don't think anything in the past is necessarily worth like canceling because it's, you know, that was a product of the time and you can learn from it. But yeah, it's interesting to read something like that. Um, But what I am reading, and I got to give myself the caveat too, because like a huge book and I'm only 10% through it, um, is this book Dawn of Everything. Really fascinating book um, so far. It's like, uh, you know, it's in that mold of revisionist history. Um, It's written by two, an anthropologist and an archaeologist. Um, The revisionist history of human civilization, kind of a la Sapiens, you know, Malcolm Gladwell kind of does that stuff, Jared Diamond. Um, But comes from a far more educated point of view and shows how our framework of looking at the world is so Eurocentric and so based in things that were, you know, a hundred years ago, there was an archaeological dig. And then that's just like become the reality when lots of science and data has overturned that. So these kind of myths that we have, um, so far really, really fascinating. Um, but again, I, maybe I should start recommending books after I finish them. (laughs) But here I am again, 10% into a huge book saying like, so far, this is really good. I'm looking it up right now. Are you, are you reading this or listening to this one? Reading. Reading. Okay. Yeah. Um, Um, So it seems like it could be a good listener book. I was talking to my buddy Connor yesterday about it and yeah, there was like, I think I'll listen to it. It's one of those books that's better listening to. And I'm like, "Ah, I could be for sure. Huh. So it's called The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity. Yeah. Like, here's the basis of like this first part, uh, which I've read through. And it's like talking about civilization. But it talks about how we've completely discounted and the fact, the data, the like kind of evidence that has shown the Enlightenment era was heavily influenced by Native American uh uh, philosophers and philosophy, um, the, the notion of equality and freedom were heavily, you know, debated in that time. And it shows how like it was actually came through a lot of these debates with native American philosophers and in America at the time. And it was like, huh, that's interesting because then they go through where that word has never popped up in written works or in debates up until this point, after this book that came out talking about uh, debates with uh, the Awatun philosopher. And you're like, oh, interesting. So, so far, fascinating. Well, you know, um, I like how you're commandeering Gear 30 into reviewing the news. Like, again, this oh, isn't yeah. what we do. But uh, so I, I talked about, I named a couple of things with, with, uh, with Jason and Chris Mm -hmm. trying to think. I just had to get myself in. Yeah, I know. I I see what you're doing. I see what you're doing here. (laughs) I will say I did finish what season of Ozark where we're kind of in the halfway. It's season four, like through the first seven episodes. I still love Jason Bateman so much, but the storylines are getting so like convoluted and dumb and like, I, I'm not, I'm just not really into this whole, like, our son is working for sort of our direct competitor. How, how normal? I'm like, hey, writer's room. 
I feel like I would have been like working against those. Like we're like going further and further down the rabbit hole of those plot lines. Like it's not really doing it for me. It just, it feels like we're in full soap opera zone with some of the like plot lines. Um, and yet like, yeah, the actors are still great and all of that, but I'm just a little bit like, okay, y'all like, yeah, no, I feel that. And I do think that's a mistake you see often. Like I'll never forget reading, uh, all the Game of Thrones 10 years ago before the TV show came out. And I remember it was just all of a sudden, like you finish the last book and they say there's one more book to go. And I'm like, this story has divided out in hundreds <laughs> of different ways. There is no chance it's going to wrap up succinctly. And I haven't watched the TV show, but I know the debate is that it was horrible how they wrapped it up and whatnot. So if George R.R. Martin never comes out with a book. I'm more almost curious to figure out how they wrap it up as opposed to continuing to splinter off these storylines. So I can see that with Ozark. Um, we're, you know, we always talk about what we're watching right now, but I will say on the topic of cooking, I've never mentioned probably my favorite TV show, Top Chef, new season coming out. I've watched every season of Top Chef. Seriously? Best, best reality show there is. Love it. I've, so good. I've always thought people that watch cooking shows are just the biggest losers. But yeah. maybe well, this maybe is, maybe I'm, maybe I'm getting tractor beamed into this. I don't know. I'm nervous. I'm scared. I, I've so seen, have you seen the show? I think it's a Netflix show called, I think it's called Chef's Table. Yeah. Yeah. Really. I've, I've watched some episodes of that that I thought were magnificent and you know, getting into the culture and the rest. Top Chef is just like, here's 11 ingredients, random things, go make something out of it. Is that the gist? No, that's more Iron Chef. Oh, no, Jesus. Like, there's I... different challenges. <laughs> like, it's, I mean, it has that element to it. But no, these are like legit, really, really good chefs that make big careers off of this show and or have awards to their name. Like, it's a, it's a competition between good Good. people it's not like yeah it's not like survivor or anything like that where it's made for tv like it like i always look at there's been like multiple genres two main eras of cooking shows and there was the eras i grew up with which it was very the cooking shows were educational in a way um yeah it was like even like emerald lagasse he was like still had this educational tilt to it uh alton brown with uh good eats which is my favorite cooking show of all time um super educational and they did things that were like teaching you now it's all just kind of like drama reality tv like i've never been able to watch what is that hell's kitchen i think or one of those ones where it's gordon ramsay yells at people and tells them they're fucking cunts and stuff like that and you're like wow how is this entertaining this is just like loosely revolving around cooking so top chef to me falls into that prior area where it's like good it's like experts doing the best they can um so i've always been a a fan of top chef um you should listen to i mean the was it the watch with andy and yeah andy every once in a while andy loves the cooking shows exactly and just even that one in general and how it's shown like because it's like 10 12 years in now and how it's shown like the like the evolution of cooking the evolution of cuisine in america through it it's been i i I think top chef's great it's a great show this is definitely the most we've talked about cooking ever on a gear 30 episode so i don't know listeners let us know if you want the some form of the cooking podcast maybe maybe we'll cut you out maybe i gotta find another 
maybe I should cut myself out, but uh, I like this idea of talking to people in the outdoor industry about some of their go-to, you know, dance moves, as it were. Maybe that's just a, we do that occasionally on the Blister podcast. Maybe it I've doesn't need its own. Of, of doing a couch surfing cookbook because Ooh. I've couch surfed my whole life, and one of my things I do to like is cook for people, and it's hard to cook Ooh. for people when you don't know exactly what they have. But everyone's got a pot, everyone's got a can opener. Can you make something good with that? Um, can you, that feeds like six people? Those things. I have some go-to recipes that I know that I'll just like cook for people when I'm at their house, and you know that's you don't know exactly what you have. So, so yeah, I, hmm. I, that was my dream. The couch surfing kickback, what well, you can do to pay for your place. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Well, maybe this, once you wrap up the 50 project, your couch surfing video series could be the next. Yeah. A little harder with a kid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> couch surfing days are probably over. That's why yeah. I like, usually I used to live at friends houses up here in Pemberton. Now I'm in rented my own studio also for the record you've stayed with me you didn't make anything for me no we went out to dinner and got drunk oh yeah that's right um (laughs) anyway i just feel like you owe me a home-cooked meal now which you maybe you'll be able to cook in my own maiden cookware whatever i end up buying because i'm i think i'm still going down this this rabbit hole so there's one last thing i feel like we gotta talk about because paul forward came out and I finally turned on the Yura coffee maker after having oh, it for yeah. over a year. And I have to say, I've used it a lot um, since the summit. And here's kind of my initial take. I am lazy and or it's either lazy or I'm very not lazy. So I just need like a radical efficiency to my life. It can go either way. I'll accept either definition. There is something about the breath the speed of like basically push a button and coffee comes out that kind of works for my alternative lifestyle and i've found myself going to it a decent amount that said and i'm i don't know i might do a further write-up about all this stuff i think the yura really does need to work with like darker roasts are what work with the yura whereas i feel like with that mocha master I've obviously, we had a big debate about light roasts and dark roasts. Interestingly, I've been using actually dark roasts this past week in the Mocha Master, but the Mocha Master does light roasts really well. I don't think the Yura can handle that, at least so far. I don't think that's its forte, but um, I get it. I get the convenience of like the push the button, but in terms of like what makes better coffee, I think I'm still team Mocha Master at this point. Phew. I was getting worried we'd have to end this podcast and I've never talked to you again. <laughs> yes. And I agree with you. There is the convenience of the Euro and that's why you, you see them in uh, European hotel rooms mm-hmm. all over the place. They're not hotel rooms with the cafes and whatnot. And that's what I think they're good for. But man, their coffee isn't that great <laughs> in my opinion. And yeah, you always need a quality bean and generally go to a hotel and there's beans sitting in the back hopper for like a month and so it's old dried out terrible beans but i agree and i agree with that the mocha master needs or does excels on lighter to medium roasts Mm -hmm. with different kind of flavor profiles as opposed to more the unilateral profiles of of darker roasts and again i just i tend to like darker roasts just the flavor of it but at the same time I've been, I was experiencing some pretty dark roasts and I realized I'm, I'm more in that like medium to dark, like mm-hmm. medium is kind of more where I'm at. Um, I just, the light roasts, they 
even at a really good coffee shop that does it the best just doesn't taste not your jam. to me so yeah yeah not my jam so I, i'm softening on the like oh it's dark roast it's like oh it's actually more medium so like mm-hmm. like a true pete's dark roast i'm like ooh, it's a little it's a little heavy <laughs> yeah and if we're going like real dark roast and that's what i've been doing the last couple of days a little bit of oat milk in there yeah even little a little dash of stevia in there but mm-hmm. if i'm going that dark i'm I, other i don't always just drink black my coffee black but um if we're going real dark roast i'm gonna oat oat milk it a little bit yeah anyway cool i think we're done we finally settled that debate (laughs) there's another machine i'm really intrigued by and i think i'm gonna like maybe try to get my hand it's called like ratio coffee.com and it looks intriguing and kind of sexy and it's some it's sort of like another kind of semi-automated pour over style so i might try to introduce this machine into the whole mocha master versus euro versus ratio coffee and i don't know we'll see um man we are i've been go ahead yeah, we're probably going super long i've been on the aeropress up here since mm. i'm not bringing my mocha master so i've yeah. been doing the aeropress which i think there's advantage it's a lot like french press but you can get a little bit flavor better flavor profile you do have to be it's like pretty pay attention to your temperature and your ratios and all that but um i do also like it for travel because it's such an easy cleanup for them french pro french press gets really tough on cleanup yeah and i've made this point before but we're talking about some relatively expensive machines here and i love the fact that if people if you're going with an aeropress it is cheap and you can still make very good coffee out of these things and so i love that there's a kind of democratization like you don't have to spend a ton of money to make good coffee and that's actually pretty cool yeah i agree so Cool. Wow. How's it? That was, a, that was our, uh, <laughs> year 30 slash, slash blister podcast. Yeah. Um, I think, I think that's just a sign you need to not, it's not really your fault. I was about to say, you need to not miss any more episodes. I, it has been a lot with the summit and then aftermath of the summit. And so, you know, I, you don't blame is not placed on you, uh, for that. I just was like, let's just run this with, with Jason. And I really enjoyed that conversation with those two guys so but i did too i saw it pop out as the first podcast i listened to when i had the monday kind of new podcast come out so i enjoyed it as well cool well um you know we i don't think you've lost your place um so you know you've secured that and mostly honestly i i really hope the next several weeks prove to be really productive for you and you get good weather windows and have safe ascents and descents and keep keep ticking some lines off i do too <laughs> keep my fingers crossed for some good weather and good stability so it's gonna be it's gonna get the the less i get done in march the heavier it's gonna get in april and may yeah that's yeah, what yeah. i gotta do staying fit going to the gym skiing and skiing always fun to catch up good luck with everything and uh we'll talk to you soon sounds good see you jonathan And that's it for this edition of Gear 30. I want to say thanks to Cody for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again next week.